If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and find verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14 will be our uh, starting point this morning. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 17, uh, which I'll read here in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14, with God's Word open before us now, let's pray and ask for His Spirit to help us in understanding and applying God's Word to our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we said earlier in our confession of faith from Psalm 119, would You open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things about Your Son, contained in your law and the gospel, things that are profitable for teaching us, for reproving us in our wayward thinking, for correcting us back onto the straight path, and for training us in righteousness that we, your people, might be complete and perfected, equipped and furnished for every good work that you have prepared for us to do in Christ Jesus. Speak, Lord, we pray, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This is the Word of God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and breathed out word. May he add his blessing to its preaching now. Well, 505 years and one day ago, in eastern Germany, in a small town called Wittenberg, a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was busily writing down 95 points of contention with the Roman Catholic Church's teachings. Uh, And you may be familiar with them. They've come to be known as Martin Luther's 95 Theses, these statements of of concern uh, and disagreement that he had with a number of Roman Catholic teachings, um, some more significant than others. uh, Parts of his his, uh, uh, theses are are devoted in very small measure to things like uh, certain aspects of papal authority uh, and corruption within the, the the priestly uh, class in the Roman Catholic Church, but the majority of Luther's concern was over the sale of indulgences. So indulgences were essentially a practice whereby a, a regular uh, Roman Catholic person uh, could pay money to the Roman Catholic Church and receive a piece of paper, an indulgence that said, because of your financial contribution, you will spend less time in purgatory paying for the sins that you've committed. And so the bigger the money, the, the smaller the amount of time in purgatory. You could buy indulgences for yourself, 
and you could buy indulgences for people that you loved and cared about. So, for example, if great-grandma was in purgatory and you knew that she lived kind of a licentious life and you thought she might take a while to get out of there, we can give money to the Roman Catholic Church and try to help her along out of purgatory and into glory. Um, There was a particular man that had uh, Luther's frock in a twist, if you could say it that way, and that was a guy named Johann Tetzel. Um, Johann Tetzel was going around Germany, and there's two stories about Tetzel that I think are, are, are worth noting. One of them is just anecdotally true about his um, sale of indulgences, the way that he would do it, and another one is really quite humorous. So Tetzel was famous for saying, once the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so it was this little ditty that he taught, and people go, oh, well, my great-grandma, you know, or auntie so-and-so is in purgatory. If I just give some money, they're going to be out like that, and that's what I want for them or for myself. I know I've not lived an upright and perfect life, and I haven't gone to Mass as much as I should, and so paying an in, in indulgence will benefit me in the next life. Now, the, the other story, Tetzel was not unwise, and he would practice his sale of indulgences outside of the pubs in the evening. He would wait till all the good Roman Catholics would go to the bar at night, and he'd wait for them to come out stumbling drunk and say, aha, you know, this is going to cost you in purgatory. You can buy an indulgence now. So one evening, uh, a man came up to to Tetzel, and he said, you know, Father, um, I, I have a question about indulgences. Can I pay for a sin that I've not yet committed and receive an indulgence uh, on behalf of a sin I've not yet committed. He said, well, of course you can. Uh, if you're giving money to the church, you receive your indulgence. And, and if you're good with the Lord right now, then this can be applied to a future sin. And the guy said, well, I'd like to buy an indulgence. And he paid him the money, and then he beat him up and took his money back. Uh, so not all, of the, uh, not all of the common folk in Germany were without wits. Well, Luther's 95 Theses argued against this practice and others on account of two basic problems— He had a sort of pragmatic, moral problem and then a theological problem. His pragmatic and moral problem was that this was an abuse of the laity. He said in one of his theses, I think it's 26, he says, the Pope is the richest man who has ever been. Why would he not build St. Peter's Basilica out of his own pocketbook rather than taking money out of the poor and needy from among his sheep? This is a horrible and oppressive and unjust practice. And so there was a moral issue that he took with the sale of indulgences and a pragmatic issue. We have poor and needy folk all over the Roman Catholic Empire, and they're being abused by this practice, first and foremost. The theological issue was that there was no scriptural basis for this practice. And Luther says at least a a half a dozen times, neither reason nor Scripture show this to be true throughout his theses. And so Luther had had a problem that the Roman Catholic Church was practicing um, on a daily basis as part of their teaching something that wasn't found in Scripture. Now, we can look back and be like, well, hey, Martin, you know, neither is purgatory. He gets there eventually, right? This is early on in his thinking about uh, how to read Scripture and interpret it in light of itself and so forth. But put that aside for a second, that he's not really addressing the issue of purgatory, but rather he's addressing the issue of indulgences based on the fact that there is not a scriptural warrant for it. And what Luther's starting to formulate in his mind at this early stage of his 
uh, transformative thinking about the gospel and scripture is what will come to be known as one of the five maxims of the Reformation. And I'm sure you're familiar with these. They're commonly referred to as the five sole of the Reformation, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, solus Christus, through Christ alone, sola scriptura, under the authority of the Word alone, and soli deo gloria, all things being done to the glory of God alone. And so these five sole, in particular sola scriptura, was starting to formulate in young Martin Luther's mind as he wrestles with the Roman Catholic tradition and the practices of that church and what is taught or otherwise not taught in Scripture. And this Sola Scriptura, the belief that all things necessary for salvation and all things concerning faith and life are taught in the Bible is the concern of our text this morning. Another way that we say this is that Scripture alone is our only perfect rule for faith and practice. This doctrine tells us that the contents of Scripture alone are able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Uh, not to make too much of a rabbit trail here, but sola scriptura cannot be affirmed with any integrity by our friends in the charismatic church who believe that there is extra biblical and continuing revelation that's needed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to know God and Christ Jesus better. Sola scriptura teaches us that our understanding of salvation and assurance of it, that our understanding of justification that our apprehension of the simple and pure gospel of Jesus Christ, our defense against false teachers, our paradigm for biblical parenting, our blueprint for marriage in the home, our thinking about money and finances, our behavior around people of the opposite sex, our application of mercy and concepts of justice, our zeal in evangelism, and our faithfulness in worship. Indeed, all of life is shaped by the teaching of Holy Scripture. The Scriptures, as our Shorter Catechism asks, teaches what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, who among us is not weary of trying to find answers in the midst of life's trials? How do I reconcile the truth of a good and holy and perfect and righteous Father in heaven in light of this experience that I'm going through right now? Who among us does not want to grow in our knowledge of and love for Christ Jesus, his commandments and his gospel? Who among us is not aware of the threat of the false teaching and the false worldviews being peddled in our schools and in our culture and on TV and even in some places that call themselves churches? My friends, this text that we're looking at this morning shows us where the answers to these questions are to be found, and that is in God's Word, His holy, inerrant, and inspired, His breathed-out Word alone. Now, I'm not suggesting that all truth is found in Scripture, or that everything needed to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or an accountant, or a homeschooling parent, or a teenager playing sport, or a mechanic, or a street sweeper or any of those things or a musician or any of those things is found in Scripture. Rather, what sola scriptura means is that all things pertaining to Christian living and godliness, that is salvation and Christian living, are found in the Bible. So do you want to know what to believe about Christ? Look in the Bible. He's all over it. 
Do you want to know what to believe about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Read God's Word. It's all there. Do you want to know how to have assurance of salvation when you feel yourself backsliding or you look around at the world and think, how can God be in control? Read the Bible. It's filled with both propositional truth statements and stories of people just like us going through the same things as we are and clinging faithfully to a faithful covenant-keeping God. So if you want to know how to be a God-honoring doctor or a God-honoring lawyer, or a Christ-exalting homeschool parent, or teenager playing sport, or accountant, or ditch digger, or whatever, read the Bible. It won't tell you how to be a doctor, or how to change the oil filter in your car, but it'll tell you how to do those things in a way that brings glory to God alone. This is the inestimable value of Scripture. It contains all that God wants His people to know about Him, about his son, and about themselves as his people. To know and love God alone, to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel, and to live according to his word as Christ's bride, the church. So the question before us is, what is Scripture's value? Perhaps more pointedly, what is your estimation of Scripture's value? Do you treasure it as it ought to be treasured? When you consider its purpose, its origin, and its usefulness. Its purpose, its origin, and its usefulness. Scripture's value is found, firstly, in its purpose. Look at verses 14 to 15 with me. Paul tells us that Scripture is designed, first of all, and this might not jump off the page at you, but let me clarify. Scripture is uh, purposed, intended, specifically to help us to continue in what we have learned and firmly believed in verse 14. Uh, Paul here says, he's painting a contrast, right? Look back at verses 12 and 13. Um, Paul is telling Timothy, uh, uh, reflecting on his own life and what he's experienced, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you could look back at verse uh, 10 and 11 to see him talk about that. And then verse 13, notice here, he says, while evil people, there's the contrast with Timothy, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived. But as for you, continue. You see that contrast there? They're going on from what they've been taught, moving on beyond Scripture and the gospel that's been given once for all. And you are told, Timothy, to hold fast to continue. Now, this idea of continue, the term that's used there, has the notion of marking time. Is everyone familiar with marking time? It just means marching in place, right? This is, a, this is marking time. All you're doing is you're, you're marching in one particular place and not going anywhere, rather than continuing to move forward. It actually, it doesn't really have an active idea, does it? It's not like going on ahead, continuing to progress, get further down the road. It actually has the idea of remain in place and stand still. So Eric was talking about Steve leading the lead with character, uh, and the young men and so forth will go up to Gettysburg, and there will be places where, of course, the commander would tell the troops to charge and attack, right? Right? But there's other places where battles occur where the enemy is, is cresting the hill and the captain of the unit will say, hold the line. 
Don't break the line by running forward ahead of where we are. We own this ground and we can't let it fall. Hold the line. And Paul says to Timothy, continue, stand firm on the line of faith that you've been given, the things that you've learned and come to believe. And so Scripture provides for us what we need to be firmly rooted in the truths of who God is and how we should live as His people. It is, as one commentator put it, kind of pedestrian. It's not very exciting. Stand still. It's not very new or novel or noteworthy. But that's just the point, isn't it? These false teachers, and you can read John's epistles to find more of this, are promoting new and novel and noteworthy teaching that are tickling the ears of the saints and saying, look, we've got a little bit more information. Come with us. Oh, you've got the Bible, but we've got a little bit more. Come with us. Oh, you think that the Bible says this, but we have a special interpretation. Come with us. Paul says, don't go with them. Don't go on. Rather, stand firm in the things that you have been given. The Christian man or woman never outgrows their need for continued faithfulness to the basic elements of their faith and the truth of God's Word. We don't outgrow our need for Scripture. There are in this room men and women who have been walking faithfully with Christ longer than I have been alive. And some of you have countless decades of fellowship with Christ Jesus in the gospel, love for God through His Son and His Spirit, an awareness of the teaching of the Word of God, a comprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, a knowledge of each and every book of Scripture. You've read through Scripture more times than I've traveled around the sun, and yet you need to know that you never, ever, ever outgrow your need for the Bible because it contains all that's necessary for life and godliness. Now, uh, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there are not commentaries and catechisms and creeds and confessions and other helpful resources that enable us to understand it more clearly. Uh, Peter himself says not all of Paul's teachings are that easy to understand. And so I recognize that while we believe in perspicuity of Scripture, not every word or line or sentence or story is as easy to interpret as the other. And so insofar as those things are faithful to God's Word, we agree with using them to benefit us in our walk with Christ. But those things are only good for our souls insofar as they are faithful to the teachings of the Bible and they don't go beyond it. Which is why you'll hear us say here, for example, one of the most important statements in the Westminster Confession of Faith is that God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. We don't have the authority to add to Scripture something that binds your conscience and says that if you don't do this thing, you're not walking faithfully with the Lord or believing truly in God because Scripture alone is our only perfect rule for faith and practice. The true character of Christian faith is faithfulness to God and His Word. There are other implications here. Uh, Paul uses this statement to, to start off verse 14, but you, but you. Paul is contrasting, again, Timothy with the false teachers um, and the imposters, evil people, he calls them in verse 13, who will go on. But he says, but you, but as for you, continue. And so, 
basically, Timothy, you have two choices. You can either go the way of these false teachers who are adding to the gospel. We can imagine Paul writing to the church in Galatia and saying, have you really been duped by another gospel? Not that there is one. Were you saved by the Spirit and now you're going to continue by the law? He says you can either go on that way being uh, fooled by wolves in sheep clothing or you can stay faithful. Now, I want you to picture for a moment with me in your mind's eye Psalm chapter 1 as a painting. Picture Psalm 1 as a painting. Let me turn there for a second. In Psalm 1, the psalmist introduces us to a paradigm that enables us to understand almost all of the psalms. He says, my child, you're walking down a trail in the woods. This is the painting I want you to envision. And that trail is the life that you live on this earth. And you're traveling down this path and you come to a fork in the road. And over here on my left is wicked people and all of their counsel and wisdom. And sinning people and all of their licentiousness and wickedness, evil. And scoffing people who mock the Lord and his law and his son. And he says, don't go down that path. Don't walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We, you hear the settledness happening there, right? You start off by walking, and then you kind of stop and stand, and then you sit down. It's almost as if he could have ended by saying, and don't lay down in the lounge of the losers. I don't know. That's a, the best alliteration I could come up with off the top of my head. Don't go that way. Don't go over here. Rather, what's he say in Psalm 1? But let your delight be in the law of the Lord, and meditate on it, on what? On God's Word, day and night. From the very opening lines of the Psalter, we see God's people being told that His Word is enough. Delight in it, trust in it, believe in it and what it teaches. Meditate on it, and it'll keep you safe from the false teaching and the world over here. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. But as for you, continue Continue, stand firm in what you have learned and believed. Don't be sucked away by the apostasy and heresy and adversity that abounds in the world. And the same is true for us in our day, isn't it? You young people know this probably better than I do or your parents do. We're marginally aware of what TikTok is and what goes on on Instagram and Snapchat. But you really know, even if you don't want anything to do with the wickedness that goes on in those places, you know what's going on in those places. And the temptation to hold hands with the world because of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the sinful pride of life can be overwhelming sometimes. And so Paul tells Timothy and he tells you, if you are to remain steadfast and immovable when the winds of cultural allure and liberal theology and doctrinal heresy threaten to bend you over like a palm tree in Florida... You have to continue in what you've learned and come to believe. In other words, you need Scripture to stand fast in this life. You need to trust the Word of God, and we can't afford to miss this simple truth. An illustration from the Bible might be helpful. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, the gospel writers provide for us accounts of Jesus' wilderness temptation. And in Jesus' wilderness temptation, Satan tempts him 
as far as we know, three times. He tempts him to turn bread into stone, which we might call the lust of the flesh. He tempts him to worship him in order to receive all the kingdoms of the world, which we might say is the lust of the eyes. Look at all these kingdoms. And throw himself off the temple so the angels will protect him, the pride of life. Show yourself to be the son of God. You deserve it. Prove it. Jesus, rather than responding by saying, pump the brake, Satan. You know I'm God. This isn't going to work. Rather than saying, actually, I know that my temptation's almost over, so food's right around the corner. I don't need that food. Rather than saying, you know, you're misappropriating that psalm when you talk about the angels. That's not really what that means, so I'm not going to jump off the roof. Jesus does one thing three times. He quotes Scripture to fight temptation. Do you want to remain steadfast and immovable in the threat of temptations and the world and the enemy's uh, uh, fiery darts? You need the Word of God. We confessed it in our confession of faith this morning from Psalm 119. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what's the value of Scripture to you? Do you believe really, practically, that it is what you need in order to walk faithfully with the Lord in this life? If so, does your lifestyle prove it? Your quiet time prove it? Imagine that there's someone following you around with a camera 24 hours a day for one week. Sound is turned off so you can say whatever you want. Someone's following you around 168 hours. You write a third of those off to sleep, maybe a tenth of them off for eating, and then 50% of what's left over, left over for work. What would a person conclude you think about the Bible based on what you do with the remaining 60 hours, 50 hours, 40 hours, two hours? It's what Christ used to fight temptation. When Satan used all his powers against our Savior, Jesus turned to sola scriptura. Second, notice, I, I want you to notice that Timothy is to continue in what he has learned and has firmly believed. There's two things going on there. When he talks about learning, Paul is using a, a, a cognate of the word disciple. You've been discipled. You've been taught propositional truths, right? So this is, this is what happens in our homes, I hope, uh, as we teach our children the truth from God's Word. Statements of fact concerning God as the creator and judge and savior are being, our children are being exposed to those, and they're hearing these true statements and learning them in the same way that you learn math, by repetition, by memorization, and by um, perhaps examination. Uh, that's what catechisms are good for, right? What is the chief end of man? That's an examination question, and your child says, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, yes? So we do the same thing. We teach pedagogically in our homes so that way our children learn up here. Timothy received the same thing, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, both from Paul as his disciple and mentor and from his mother and grandma. He learned things. But then there's, a, there's a, a, an element, there's a thing that happens on our faith journey that I like to use the word, well, it's not my word, I'm borrowing it, but the word that I think is most helpful is apprehension. There's an apprehension of those truths 
that make them more than factoids about God and doctrine, and they make them part of the warp and woof of your life and soul, you firmly believe them. Firmly believe these things. So you young people, many of you are memorizing Scripture and creeds and catechisms. You sit at the table as your father or mother or both lead you in family worship. You're singing songs with us as a church. And most of us knew the words to a mighty fortress is our God before we opened our hymnal to page 92 because we've sung it many, many times. But there's a difference between knowing that thing is true and firmly believing it as yours in a salvific way. And that's, a, that's supposed to happen as you discover Christ in these truths. As you, your eyes are opened by faith to see Christ in these truths that you're learning in your home, that you've learned in your Sunday school class, that we confess and sing here in church in worship that those things might become a part of your soul, that you might become one who has placed your own faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not in truths about Christ, but in Him, the person, the man, who came down from heaven for you and for your salvation. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you know it doesn't save you, but you trusting in Jesus having died on the cross for your sins does. Believing it and loving him for it. When we get to heaven and stand before the judgment seat of God, we will not arrive at a game show stage that looks a lot like Jeopardy. And St. Peter says, Okay, I died for all your sins. You go, Who is Jesus? That's not how our entrance into heaven occurs. You know that, right? Yet many of us live lives as if that's the goal at the end of it, is to have the most facts memorized, rather than have a heart swelling with love for a Savior who loves us. What's the difference between knowing and believing? There's a guy, a tightrope walker, who uh, sets up a tightrope across Niagara Falls, Um. I can think of no more foolish extracurricular activity in the world. But here you go. So this guy, he starts off on one side, and he gets the crowd all fired up. And he says, do you believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls? And the whole crowd, yeah, we believe. And they're really excited that he's going to do it. And so he takes his, his, his pole, and he walks across Niagara Falls. He gets to the other side, and everyone's cheering and clapping and excited for him. And they, this is amazing. I've never seen anybody do that in person before. And he goes, do you believe I can go back blindfolded? And the people go, why not? Tim, not me. I'm not out there. Go for it. Yeah, we believe you can do it. And so sure enough, he ties on a blindfold. And, and blindfolded, he walk, I'm losing my balance just standing on this. And he walks back with his, you know, uh, his tightrope pole, and he gets back to the other side. Everybody's excited. Uh, you know, uh, women are falling out. Children are weeping and crying. Everybody loves this man. He's just amazing. And he says, who believes I can ride a bicycle back across Yes, we believe. And so he puts this harness on for the balance thing, and he gets on a bike, and he rides it across to the other side, and he gets on the other side. Everybody can't, they can't believe it. This is amazing. This guy simply cannot fall. I don't believe that he can fall anymore. He's so good. And he goes, who believes that I can push a person across in a wheelbarrow to the other side? Yeah, everybody believes. He goes, all right, somebody come up here and get in the wheelbarrow. Dead silence. Dead silence. 
And so many children and so many professing Christians are standing on the side of Niagara Falls cheering for Christ who is able to ride a bike across it and even push somebody in a wheelbarrow. But you're not willing yourself to firmly believe and get in the wheelbarrow with him. And Paul says, Timothy, you learn these things are true. And I'm so pleased that you firmly believe them now. Continue in them. Continue in them. Well, part of Timothy's continuing in the faith has to do with when he learned it. Now, I don't mean to imply that a person cannot or does not come to faith later in life. But Timothy, rather, uh, he began to learn these things from infancy, it says in verse 15. And how from childhood, that word there means infancy. It can even refer to a baby in the womb. From infancy, you have heard and become acquainted with the sacred writings. Uh, Fathers and mothers, it is our responsibility before God and for our children to be teaching them the things of God's Word from the earliest days of their lives, to give them the greatest amount of exposure to the truth of God and His Word, that they might come to learn and then fully believe in those things that are true. No one, I guarantee, has ever got to heaven and said to themselves, gosh, I just, I didn't play as many video games as I should have. Pick something even less ridiculous than that. No one has ever gotten to heaven and thought, I wish I had taken more walks in the woods than I should have. But God forbid we get there and say, I wish I had instructed my children more than I should have or more than I did. We have a responsibility, and what a blessing it is to Timothy and to our children, to the benefit of our youth here and our youth group here at this church, that we have faithful parents and teachers who are committed to bringing their children up in the instruction and fear of the Lord, that the things you learn you may fully believe as you get older. Well, Scripture, he tells us, is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. I'm going to be very brief on this point. Um, One of the purposes of Scripture is to cause us to stand firm and to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Um, Timothy is living here in the middle of the first century where next to none of the New Testament has been written down, and what has is certainly not in circulation. What Paul is telling Timothy is that the Old Testament— which Timothy has been acquainted with since childhood, is able to make you wise insofar as you have faith in the Christ Jesus who is on the pages of the Old Testament. So let me say this very plainly. Uh, obviously, Neil's in Georgia right now, so I don't want to cast, I don't want lightning coming down on Georgia. But recently, somebody in Georgia said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That is hogwash. That's foolish nonsense that, is not, that has nothing to do with Scripture. The whole of the Old Testament is a story of God's redemptive work, which culminates in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The whole of the Old Testament is needed for us as Christian people, as a Christian church and Christian families, in order to know and love God and His Son, Jesus Christ, more. Redemptive history is the sweeping story of the Bible from beginning to end. God spoke everything into existence, and then man in, his, uh, in, his, uh, in the garden fell from that state 
because of their sinful choice. And immediately God clothed them in their nakedness by the skins of an animal that he himself killed. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send one to destroy the serpent and his curse and to bring to himself a people for his own possession. And the whole sweeping narrative of Scripture is about that story and that seed. And we see evidences of it, uh, shadows of it in the ark when God rescues his chosen covenant people from the judgment flood uh, 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 against the sin of the world. And that ark is Christ. And we see it in the Exodus when God redeems his people out of slavery to to Egypt and the oppression of the Egyptians and brings them to the promised land. Note now that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he's talking with Moses and Elijah, they're talking to him about a very particular topic. And it tells us that they're speaking about the Exodus that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see, all these things are arrows pointing us to the one pinnacle person in Scripture, and that's Jesus. And so if we read our Old Testament, and we could go on and on, the list is endless, of ways in which the Old Testament reveals to us Christ and what he's coming to do, we would be wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus with our Old Testaments. Isn't that a fascinating truth? And yet some churches will never talk about it, never read it, other than to make comments about Jewish history. We need the Bible to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 24 tells his disciples that all of Scripture speaks of him. He says the same to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. That you search the Scriptures looking for eternal life, but they talk about me. Moses was talking about me, he says. All of Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, and it's necessary, necessary for life and godliness. Far from needing to discount 70% of our Bibles, we need to become intimately acquainted with them so when we turn and transition into the New Testament, we know who this Jesus is and just what he's doing. So the Bible helps us to stand firm in our faith, helps us to have faith in Christ Jesus, and the reason that we can be so confident in it is because of the author or the divine origin of Scripture. Paul, in verse 16, uses this word, God breathe, theopneustos. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Many of you have heard it before, and I won't belabor it. Uh, But the idea here in verse 16, you know, we use the word inspiration, which is kind of unfortunate, and I use it too because it's pretty common. But the idea of inspiration has far more to do with breathing in, to be inspired, to take into yourself something from outside, an outside source, to be inspired. If we wanted to be a little bit more technical, we would say that God expired the Bible. He breathed it out. But expired sounds like died, and so we don't use that term. Perhaps a helpful term would be the spiration of Scripture. Through God's Spirit, the breath of God the Word of God came forth. Now, that might sound like a fancy term that has no practical use for the Christian sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, and least of all on Wednesday when you're reading your Bible with your children. But I would contend that the fact that Scripture is spirated by God, breathed out by God, means that what it says 
should be held in the highest esteem of all things that could be said or ever have been said. Psalm 138 verse 2 tells us that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Elsewhere, God tells us that he can swear by nothing higher than his name, and so he swears by himself that he will keep all his promises. And if his name and his word are exalted above all things, how valuable must his word be? The word of God, while we don't worship it, we believe that it contains all of the most important things that we can know about God and about Christian living. It's God-breathed. Our confession in chapter 1 says, "...the authority of Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not on the testimony of any man or a church, but wholly upon God, the author thereof." And therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. So why do we look to so many other sources for matters about which the Bible is spoken? About worship. Well, that's one of our biggest mistakes in, in modern evangelicalism is we look to the culture to ask questions about Christian worship. About child raising. We look to secular psychology to ask questions about raising our children to love and fear the Lord. About marriage. We look to what, athletes, to show us what good marriages ought to look like? The Bible speaks of these things, and all we need for Christian living is to be found in it, glorifying God in our vocation, submission to authority, and so forth. One author says, we guard against the imperialism of the present by ransacking the authority of the ancient. And so rather than looking to the world around us to find answers to life's questions about life and faith, we go to the one place, the only place, where the truth of God himself has been laid down by his own voice, the word of God. Is this thing powerful unto salvation? The very same word of God spoke everything into existence. When once there was nothing, God spoke and everything came into existence. Colossians tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. John tells us that not one thing has been made outside of him who made all things. Think about this in your mind for a moment, the power of the word of God. While Jesus was lying on the ground on a cross, his back being ripped apart by the, by the splinters and broken pieces of wood upon which he was laid, and some Roman soldier was hammering nails through his wrists with a hammer made of metal and wood, nails made of metal the size of my thumb, going through his wrists, nailing him to the cross. Consider for a moment that the reason that that Roman soldier's heart was able to beat was because Jesus was giving him life by his word. That the reason that that hammer didn't explode into a billion particles of nothingness, of just atoms floating around through space, the first time he hit the nail is because Jesus was active in his deity in preserving the molecular structure of that hammer. That the reason that you and I can sit on this giant ball hurling through space at hundreds of miles an hour, spinning at a thousand miles an hour, and we don't even blink about it, 
hurling through space around a giant fireball is because God spoke the universe into perfect existence. Now, is the Word of God powerful? Oh, yeah. And this is the Word of God given to us that we might believe in His only Son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is life eternal. And it's all contained there. It's all there. Scripture's origin is divine. Its purpose is for our faith and godliness. And he says, obviously, in verse 16, that it's profitable for our teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. In other words, all that we need. There's a whole other sermon here. I won't... uh, You ready for part two? I'm just kidding. It's all that we need for life and godliness, that we might be taught who God is, that we might be corrected when our thinking goes astray so we won't be like these evil men and imposters who go from bad to worse, but rather that we would be firmly rooted in what we have learned and believed, that we can continue and stand fast, that we may be trained in righteousness, that you and I might be complete in this life for everything that God puts in our path, for every good work, every good deed, fully equipped, ready to go, uncompromising and unflinching in the face of trial and tribulation, knowing that when the diagnosis comes, that the answers are found in Scripture, that when the funeral happens, that the comfort is found in Scripture, that when the uncertainty lies on the horizon, that the God who is not just, he doesn't just know about tomorrow, he's already there, and he's found in Scripture. What a wonderful gift that God has given us in his word, that we might know his son, Jesus Christ, and be fully equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is everything we need for life and godliness. You have fully equipped us by it. You have taught us in it. You have shown us through it who your Son is, who we are in light of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, and just how we might be reconciled to you, the God of the universe. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people of the Word. Would you make men in this church men of the Word, who love Scripture and its truth who meditate on it and, and rest in it and, and think about it daily and then teach it to their children? Would you make women in this church women of the Word who love what it says about them as women and about your love for them as your daughters? Would you cause our children to be children of the Word who learn it and then as you open their eyes by faith to see Christ that they would firmly believe it as they repent of their sins and love the Jesus who offers them salvation, even as he's offered it to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.